Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman, Oklahoma. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Mark chapter 15, um, but we will be switching to Mark 8 at the beginning. So Mark 15 is what we'll open with. Verse 33, this is the death of Jesus. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Would you pray with me? Dear Holy Father, uh, we ask that you would be glorified this morning. Lord, uh, you are worthy to be praised. You're worthy to learn about in your word. You're worthy to devote our time and our energy uh, to study your scriptures that you faithfully handed down through the generations. And Lord, I ask that you um, would fill us with your spirit to reveal the truth that you would have us learn today. Not only that we might um, learn, but that we might apply it to our life. God, I ask that you would change us, you would spiritually transform us uh, into, into the people that you would desire us to be, to be your faithful servants that bring you glory. Lord, I pray that you would protect the words that I speak today, that Lord, if anything is not from you, if anything is uh, against your truth, Lord, that it would be quickly forgotten. And Lord, I pray that your words, your truth would, would settle in the hearts of our students here. Lord, we ask all this, asking for your name to be glorified and praised. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So like I said, we are beginning, uh, be, or excuse me, we are continuing our Life of Christ series. So we are kind of at the climax of the story, right? We are at his death. Uh, this is a momentous point, not only in human history, but in salvation history. And so we're going to be talking about the significance of his death today. But before I begin, I have to share a story. So some of you may have seen, but the student ministry and the college ministry team took a trip to Louisville, Kentucky a couple weeks ago to a conference called Together for the Gospel. And Together for the Gospel is a conference, and its mission is to unite church leaders across the nation, across the world, under one mission, to stand and remember why we are gathering together, and that's to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it gathers church leaders from 25 denominations, 50 states, and 62 nations. Piper, in describing uh, the unity Christians have in Christ, he says this, the vision of Christ that we have together, talking about together for the gospel, isn't a hazy vision. If you have a hazy Christ, you have a hazy fellowship. If you have a clear, delineated Christ, magnificent in all his ways and all of his work, then you have a magnificent camaraderie. 
And when we arrived, I wasn't sure what I was expecting, but one of the things that I was expecting was really good preaching. You know, some of my favorite preachers were there, like Alistair Begg. He's my favorite preacher, and he was there preaching. Uh, I was expecting to have my mind blown by these theological, you know, intelligent people. But the thing that I kind of came away with and the thing that struck me was not any theological tenet. It wasn't any magnificent preaching, though there was great preaching, but it was the tone and the way in which they communicated with one another. It was the way in which they talked to each other. These people who disagree on a host of secondary issues, from things like mode of baptism to the role of spiritual gifts to even more pressing cultural issues, the thing that they were united on and clearly communicated that, not only to each other by the way that they spoke and the way, the, the way that they fellowshiped, but by the way they presented themselves to us. And I don't know what I was expecting, but the thing that I came away experiencing and remembering, and the thing that I'll remember for years, is not what they said, but how they were. Not what they said, but how they were. Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his classic Life Together describes Christian community like this. I want you to think if you've ever experienced Christian community like this, he says this, Christ opened up the way to God and our brother. Now Christians can live with one another in peace. They can love and serve one another, and they can become one. But they can continue to do so only by way of Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ are we one. Only through him are we bound together. Only in Jesus Christ are we one. You know, this is, this is the ideal, right, of Christian fellowship, of Christian community. But so many of us, maybe we've had Christian community, but it's been fractured in some way. Maybe it's been fractured uh, in, the, in maybe the sin that you've committed against a brother or sister, or maybe a sin that's been committed against you. And this ideal that Diedrich Bonhoeffer is describing, you maybe have experienced or tasted, but haven't experienced or tasted in a long time. Well, I hope this morning that we can look at the death of Christ, look at the atonement, and, and see how, through Jesus, we can not only have peace with God, but peace with others. Because that's what Jesus provides. And my takeaway from this conference is that just like Jesus it defied my expectations, but it fulfilled its promises. It defied my expectations, and it fulfilled its promises. And today, I share that story with you because it's relevant to our topic in so many ways. And we'll be looking at the death of Christ and specifically how, uh, number one, how he fulfilled promise but defied expectations, how he justifies us, and how we live Justified. So to begin, we're going to be in Mark 15, but we're going to start by jumping back to Mark 8. So if you have your Bible, flip to Mark 8. We're going to be in verse 27. And one of the things I want to remind us on our journey through the book of Mark is what has Mark been communicating to us through this book? What has he been communicating to us? And one of the things that we learned a few weeks ago when we talked about the theme of Jesus as the suffering servant is that he has constantly and consistently flipped expectations of what others and what even his disciples had for him. 
And Mark 8, uh, the first eight chapters of Mark, what he is trying to do for his audience is to, to depict to us and to show his disciples that Jesus is the Messiah. The first eight chapters of Mark, we see the miracles of Jesus. We see him casting out demons. We see him performing miracles. We see him rebuking the chief priests. We see him calling sinners to repent. And we see him as the Messiah. But the first thing that he does when his disciples make this realization is so interesting. And is the turning point of Mark's gospel. And we'll start in verse 27. When they see who Jesus is, finally. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Verse 28, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. So up until this point, we have seen Jesus do all of these things, proving that he is the Messiah. And finally, finally, his disciples get it. His disciples understand you are the Messiah. You are the promised Savior. All of this has been pointing to one thing, and it takes place in verse 29. So put yourself in the disciples' shoes. You have seen all of these amazing things that Jesus has done. You have seen all of these signs and wonders and miracles, and you finally come to the realization that this is God in flesh. You'd be excited. You'd be excited about what Jesus is to bring. He's going to establish this earthly kingdom. He's going to deliver them from the Romans. He's going to uh, basically give them royalty. But he does something so interesting right after Peter claims that he is the Messiah. So imagine, they just realized that he is the coming Savior, and he replies in this way. Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now put yourself in Peter's shoes for a second. You just claim that he's the Messiah. You just said he is the Savior of the world, and then immediately he says, guess what? I'm going to die. Guess what? I'm going to be killed by the people I said I would deliver you from. How crazy is this? It makes sense that Peter would try to rebuke Jesus, but it doesn't really go very well. Verse 33, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter in front of everyone. He said, get behind me, Satan. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So the question we have is, what? <laughs> what? We finally realize, imagine the disciples, we finally realize that you're the Messiah, and now you tell us this, that you're going to die. This doesn't make any sense. 
And that's because Jesus fulfilled ancient promises, but he defied expectations. He was not the Messiah that they were looking for, even though he was the Messiah that was promised. See, they were wanting a Messiah on their terms. But a part of Jesus' teachings was that our expectations are flawed, and they are flawed dramatically. Something I think that we see here is that, and J.D. Greer, he's uh, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he says this, uh, we don't get our own personal Jesus. We don't get our own personal Jesus. He is who he is. He was a historical person. He is sitting on the right hand of the Father. And like Peter, we have things in our mind that we think Jesus should be. But we should always let the Scripture, always let the Holy Spirit shape our thoughts about who Jesus is. Because if not, then we are just worshiping a God of our own imagination instead of the God who is. The second is that following Jesus is not glamorous. Following Jesus is difficult, and it may even cost us our life. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, and we can't deceive ourselves that this gospel is not offensive to those who are not following Jesus. And the reason why it's so offensive is because the gospel does not promise prosperity. The gospel does not promise all the good things in life. The gospel does promise restored relationship with God. The gospel does promise salvation from sin. But in this life, we will face suffering. We will face persecution. And the disciples, if we look at church tradition and history, all of them died a gruesome death for their faith. Now, in America, we don't experience that type of suffering or that type of persecution. But one thing that we have to keep in mind is that following Jesus is not always glamorous. It's not always going to get you the status. It's not always going to get you the things that you want. And sometimes if you are truly, truly following Jesus, there is a cost to, disciple, uh, cost to being a disciple that you have to weigh. There's a cost to discipleship. See, at this point, Jesus is making the switch. He's making the switch from showing them that he is the Messiah to showing them what kind of Messiah he will be. And Messiah, that word just means savior, okay? That means the promised one who would save them. And from here in Mark 8 begins the journey to the cross. Mark 8 to where we are gonna be the rest of this morning in Mark 15 is where this journey to the cross starts to begin. And this first prediction of his death in Mark 8 It begins this journey from glamorous miracles, glamorous signs and wonders to death on a tree. Totally changes from Mark 8 on. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark 15. We're going to go ahead and continue in verse 33. And as we look at the death of Christ, I don't want us to merely look at this theologically, but to remember that this was a historical event. This, This was something that was verifiably true, and it's depicted um, in four different gospel accounts, and he appeared to hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses. This was something that actually happened, Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, okay? And it takes place in verse 33. He's on the cross. It says this, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, 
which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled the sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So to begin, I want to start with one of the hardest moments in Scripture. And one of the reasons why I really wanted to go over this passage um, was because I never... I never truly grasped or understood this um, as a college student. What was happening? What was taking place on this cross? Now, a lot of it maybe we'll never fully understand because of the miraculous nature of the cross. But let's look and take a second and look at verses 33 through 34. It says, At noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So let's look at verse 33. It says, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. This is interesting because noon is typically the brightest time of the day, right? When the sun's highest in the sky. But we see that darkness came over the whole land. Now, some scholars, they think that this darkness is referring to a spiritual darkness, kind of the, the weight of the situation that was happening, God in flesh on a cross, the, the spiritual nature of the matter, it would create a, a level of spiritual darkness. But me and, and other scholars say that this darkness actually was dark, that there was a darkness that came over the land. Now, we don't know exactly how that happened, but I think this, is, this, is, this seems to be the most accurate case because oftentimes judgment is referred to as, if maybe you've heard this phrase, the day of the Lord. And when the day of the Lord is described in the Old Testament, oftentimes it's used with physical depictions of darkness. And so you might be thinking, Kevin, isn't God always described as light? Isn't God always described in a, a light metaphor? Well, sometimes in his judgment, in his wrath, he is described with darkness. So I think more likely that this is actual darkness coming over the land. And then in verse 34, we get to the crux of the passage. Whenever Jesus cries out to his father and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what we know about Jesus is that he was 100% God and he was 100% human. He eternally and forever remained in communion with the father and with the Spirit. So how do we reconcile this verse? How can we understand this? Well, what's great about Scripture is that it is a unified whole, and we use other parts of Scripture to interpret other parts of Scripture. So if we know that Jesus is in 100% communion with the Father and the Spirit at all times, I can't get to the point and say that the Father had abandoned him. But instead, what I think Jesus is experiencing on this cross, he is experiencing the full wrath of the sin of the world, of all human history. He's experiencing all of that sin, the punishment and the wrath for all of that sin at one moment. Now, I think he was experiencing the feeling of abandonment feeling it, the absence of God. But God was there. And how do we know that God was there? He was there in a way that maybe we wouldn't expect. He was there delivering the wrath upon Jesus Christ, his son. 
He was there delivering the wrath. Let's do the next slide there. On Jesus Christ, his son. Isaiah 53.10 says it like this. Isaiah 53.10 says that um, it, was, it pleased God to crush him and to put him to grief. God was present in the wrath being subjected upon his son. And we didn't read this beforehand, but, you, but right before this takes place, there are many who are blaspheming the son of man, ridiculing him. And you might think God would appear to punish these blasphemers, but he appears not to punish the sinners, but to punish Jesus Christ, his son, instead. Think about that for a second. Jesus, who was perfectly innocent, without sin, took on the punishment of all sin, of all mankind. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what he was suffering, what he was experiencing in that moment? He wasn't just experiencing the physical torment of being on the cross, but the spiritual wrath of our sin. In verse 35, it continues. These blasphemers, some of them, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on his staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down, he said. Now you might think, why, is he call, why are they saying he's calling Elijah? Well, Elijah in the Old Testament, he was a, he was a prophet who delivered uh, people time and time again. And he was kind of depicted in this time as someone who was a deliverer of sorts. And then the reason they offer him uh, wine vinegar is to see if he can suffer longer. But um, medical examiners, they say that more than likely this would only speed up the suffocation, in the, the suffocation process in the crucifixion. Verse 37, it ends with this. The most profound moment in human history with the most profound effects in human history. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. God in the flesh dies. He did not merely appear dead. He truly lived and died. Here is it's written in Mark 15, 37. But praise God, he didn't stay dead, right? Now, I want to take some time and talk about the ramifications of this verse because this has the most profound effects in human history. These eight words have eternal consequence. And last week I talked about, we're going to get a little, just stick with me here. We're going to talk about a few big words. But last week I talked about propitiation, okay? And time and again, we see in Scripture that Christ was the propitiation for our sins. And what we learned was that propitiation means averting wrath with the offering of a gift. And so Jesus Christ, as that offering, took on the, the full satisfaction of God's wrath for sin. We learned that the wages of sin is death, okay? So what, what the earning for sin is, is death, and that Christ took on that wage. But now we're going to talk a little bit about what changes after that propitiation has been satisfied, okay? And that is something called the atonement. Has any, raise your hand if you've heard that word before, atonement, okay? Not just the movie, but maybe read it in scripture. All right, so the atonement is something that is so, so beautiful because it changes our status with God. The atonement changes our status with God. For those that have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, atonement refers to the reconciliation 
that exists now between a holy God and sinful man. Logically, it is impossible for something so pure to be be in the presence of defiled, sinful man. But because Christ forgave us through his death on the cross, we can be restored back. That's what reconciliation means. We can be restored back to God, come back into a harmonious relationship with God. And so that is what the atonement refers to. And we get this idea not just from people getting big brains and saying, oh, this is what this means, but this is actually what it says in Scripture, okay? So let's read a few verses together. Romans 3.25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Romans 5.11, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's that word again. Romans 5.19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also, talking about Adam there, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Okay? And so essentially what is taking place here is not only is Jesus receiving the full punishment of the sin that we committed, but he is also forgiving us of our sin so that we can be in right relationship with God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That's incredible. That is what's taking place here on the cross when Jesus takes the full wrath and sin of our punishment It's so that we can be made right with God. It's so that we can know him personally. So why do I share all these things? Why do I share all these things? Because God provided a way of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. On the cross, we see the act, the atoning work of Jesus Christ as the propitiation of our sins, okay? Propitiation is the act, the death, right? And the atonement is the change in God's disposition towards sinners who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. The distinction is, this is a good illustration I saw, the distinction is the same as that between the ransom that is paid and the attitude of the one who receives the ransom. Okay? God made a way back to him through Jesus Christ. This is our salvation. R.C. Sproul He describes salvation like this. Christ's supreme achievement on the cross is that he placated or satisfied the wrath of God, which would burn against us were we not covered by the sacrifice of Christ. This is about the essence of salvation, that as people who are covered by the atonement, we are redeemed from the supreme danger which any person is exposed is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God who's wrathful but there is no wrath for those whose sins have been paid that is what salvation is all about gosh this is mind-blowing stuff guys this is mind-blowing stuff and this is what it means to be justified So what do we do in response? What is the response to our justification? What does it look like to be 
forgiven of our sin? Is there any response or is it just like, hey, I'm good now. I can live the life I want. I've been saved. I don't have to deal with the wrath. Or is there something that happens that changes those who have, been, who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin? Well, I think living justified is something that we see all throughout scripture. And two of the things that I just want to focus on briefly here is that it allows us to have peace with God and peace with others. So peace with God. How do we have peace with God? Well, think about it like this. Our bill is paid. Our conscience is cleared. And our communion with God is restored. Because of Christ's work on the cross, we have been forgiven. Colossians 2.14 says, God has canceled our debt. Our debt has been paid. Hebrews 4.16, we can have confidence in our relationship with God. We don't have to come to him in fear in the sense of being, being scared that we're going to be punished for our sin or being, being fearful that we cannot be in his presence, because of Jesus Christ as our great high priest, he mediates on behalf of us and God the Father. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. God is near because of the salvation work in Christ. Because of Christ's work, we can be restored back to God. We were separated, but through Christ, we are connected. We were separated, but through Christ, we are connected. Number two, peace with others. This affects the here and now, guys. This affects how we treat others around us. This is how we can achieve Christian fellowship through Jesus Christ. Because we have been forgiven, we can forgive others. See, when we sin, we are not sinning merely against this ethereal force and other sinners. We are sinning against a holy God. Our sin is against a holy God. That means there was only one appropriate sacrifice that could cover all sin, and that was God in flesh dying. That is why Jesus Christ could be the only sacrifice. So the fact that we have been forgiven by that, by that holy God for our sin means that we in turn can forgive others because we have sinned against the holy God so we can forgive others who sin against us, right? It means we live in view of the mercy given. So often when people wrong us or people hurt us or people do things that wound our spirits, we focus on them. We focus on us rarely, and it is almost impossible to do this without Christian, other Christians and being in the word, pointing us to the fact that we have already been forgiven. And if we focus on the mercy that we've already received, it is so much easier to extend mercy to others. If we focus on the mercy that we have already received, we can forgive that's why I think that Christians, more than anyone in this entire world, should be radical forgivers, especially in comparison to the rest of the world. We should be radical forgivers. That's one thing that I think the world should be able to obviously see in our life is that we are quick to forgive because we recognize that we stand forgiven. Matthew 6, 14 through 15 puts it pretty intensely. It says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
This might sound, if you do this, I do this, but really it's framing God's forgiveness to you versus your forgiveness to others. God teaches us how to relate to others by how he relates to us. Stephen Wallum, he's a professor at uh, Southern Seminary. He says it like this, basically translating this verse. Since in Christ we have been forgiven of our horrendous sin against God of all glory, and that in Christ everything we have received is by grace, then if God has forgiven us of our treason against him, then we can certainly forgive others of their sin against us. So to bring it full circle, this peace with God and others is tied to our unity in the gospel. As Bonhoeffer said, Christian brothers, because of Christ, can become one. Can become one. Do you have that Christian fellowship? Do you have that kind of Christian fellowship? If not, what is stopping you? Are you living in view of the mercy that God has already given you? Or are you holding on to what others have done against you? Christ was the promised Messiah, but he wasn't what people were expecting. Similarly, how can you live a life of radical forgiveness that people don't expect? People don't expect radical forgiveness because they don't deserve radical forgiveness. But we can extend it because of what Christ has already done for us. Because of his unexpected life and death, we can now receive atonement for our sin. We can be in right relationship with God and in turn, right relationship with others. And because of that atonement, we can have peace with God and with others.